welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwaneka. Dr. Hatfield, will you please open up a Bible with me, if that's all right, to the book of Acts 13, 13, chapter 13, verse 13. So in your New Testament, second half of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you get to this book called Acts. And what the book of Acts is, it's the incredible, adventurous, intimidating at times, encouraging story of the early church, the very first Jesus followers. And we've done two sermon series already in this book as we're working through it, Real Christianity, and then recently, uh, those Jesus people, which was last year. So when I say recently, that's exactly what I mean. And so now we're coming back to the book after we finished, John. And in this series, we're calling it Tales from the Table. Because think about this just for a second. You can't even find today any monuments to the early church's movement. You don't find temples and synagogues and, and all these foundational places. Why? Because as we've often said, the most powerful gathering of the early church was never the temple. It was the table. How do you think that this marginalized group of people with no political influence, with zero standing socially, how did they become the most impactful force for good in the history of mankind? It was through thousands of these meals where gender and class and background and all these things got broken down where this Jesus-following kind of spirit-infused family on mission got started. And I'm just thinking, man, if, if the table of the early church could talk, what stories would it tell us of what God was doing? And here's the beautiful thing. We serve that very same God today, that very same spirit that is in us today and so what would the stories of the table of this church want to tell us in this next season? Let's discover that together. Now, when I want to tell you a story. Today is literally a one-point sermon. In AD 203, so that's about 170 years after the resurrection of Jesus, about 1,800 years ago, there was a young woman called Perpetua, 22 years old. So I know most of the students have gone home. Let's quickly see, 25 and under. Anyone today? Put up your hand Let's for a second. So yeah. Whole bunch, right? So this is your... <laughs> Thanks, Billy. I saw that. Um, 25 and hot. Um, so this is, this is about your age. Just think about the story for a second. So this, this very... She was a highly educated noblewoman, Perpetua, and she is arrested by the Roman government. And what was a heinous crime? It was this, that recently she had started unapologetically saying that I now serve this Jewish man, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, as God. And not only that, she was saying that I now refuse to acknowledge or worship this whole pantheon of Roman gods. I say there is but one God, and his name is Jesus. And for that, this highly educated 22-year-old, just like some of you guys sitting here, was brutally killed by the Roman government. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because if I want to make sense of the life of Perpetua, I cannot come to anything else but to this conclusion. This woman, 
lived her life as if Jesus was everything. As if the main actor in the story of her life was not even her, it was God. She lived as if God really existed. And if Jesus' news was really good and what we do in this life really matters. She lived with Jesus at the center, even to her death. So the way that she viewed her world, her worldview was one that said God is at the center of everything and that changes everything. If he is everything, it touches and transforms everything in my life. It's not just a, a bit of religious sprinkling on my already okay-ish life. It's not going to now, you know, church on a Sunday every now and then and saying some religious things. No, she says, because God is who he says he is in Jesus, it changes everything. That was her worldview. Maybe you say, okay, worldview, it's like a bit of an abstract term. We don't use that very often. So I want to use the illustration we've used before because I think it's so effective. So here's a thought experiment. If a fist-sized object came flying at your face at 250 kilometers an hour, what would you do? Duck, that's a, that's a good answer. But just put that in perspective. You're saying duck, think about this. It means that from our new kids venue on the other side to where I'm standing, 70 meters in one second. And the answer is, what would we do? Most of us, nothing. <laughs> because you would just be knocked out cold. But if you are a professional tennis player, then that is actually part of your daily routine. It's to have things fly at your face at 250 kilometers an hour. You see, because the OG of tennis many years ago, Pete Sampras, who remembers him? He was the guy who introduced this idea of a big server who, who served so radically and ruthlessly that he often won games just by serving. And it became a thing. And then in the year 2001, Andy Roddick, this American player, he came onto the scene and he changed the way people thought about this because he started serving in excess of 240 to 250 kilometers an hour. This thing would come flying at you on the other side of the net in one second. So my question is, how do you return a ball that's going 250 kilometers an hour? And I listen to what the very famous tennis coach, David Wheaton, says. Read with me. And notice the wording. He says, a good returner absorbs several things about a big server. So they can learn where the serve might be going. They notice where the ball tosses. They notice where the server likes to serve on big points and where he's been going on previous points and maybe even where the server looks before he serves. Just a lot of little things that gives the return an idea of where the ball might go. Did you hear that? Noticing, observing, absorbing, and then positioning myself accordingly. The worldview of a tennis player is I need to absorb all that is true and then position myself accordingly. The way that I view everything in my reality has to be filtered through those things that I notice and absorb so that I can position myself for the maximum effectiveness. So what is a worldview? A worldview means that you are seeing everything in your life through a certain lens, and everyone has that. Maybe you can't verbalize it, but you have it. A worldview is like a lens that you view all of your life through. It colors everything you do, the way you spend your money, Black Friday, the way that you use your sexuality, 
the way that you speak about our country, the way you treat your children and your husband or your wife, the way that you think about where your vocation is going and what the point of your life is. All of us have a worldview. And here's what I want to tell you. Perpetua had a worldview. She saw life in a certain way. She noticed, absorbed, and she said the following, I position myself in this place. Life is all about God. Life is not even about me. How radical is that? If she was an influencer, if she had Instagram, she would not have been very popular because she would have said, guys, it's not about you. It's about God. Now, why am I saying this to you? Because today we come to this moment in the book of Acts where Paul, who used to be a church persecutor and having his life absolutely transformed by a meeting with the resurrected Jesus becomes a church planter, we see his first ever sermon recorded as he goes and he speaks to this group of Jewish people. And I want you to see, because it's quite a lengthy passage, I've cut out some of it just for the sake of time, but how he gives us this overview of some of what God has been doing. And he's inviting you today to say, there is a grand story. And the question is, are you going to allow your story to be taken up into that story, for that story to become your worldview? And I want you to see how it changes every single aspect of your life. So let's read together. Acts 13, 13. So Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John left them and went back to Jerusalem. So they continued their journey from Perga and reached Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue, the Jewish gathering, and they sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. Who's ever made that Mistake. Just ask someone really to come and say something on the mic on a Sunday. Paul stood up and he motioned with his hands and said, fellow Israelites and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt and led them out with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And this all took about 450 years. After this, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him that I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart, who will carry out all my will. And from this man's descendants, as he promised, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. Before his coming to public attention, John, that's now the baptizer, who had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, now as John was completing his mission, he said, who do you think I am? And I'm not the one, but the one who's coming after me, I am not even worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, is it to us that this word of salvation has been sent? Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him, Jesus, or the sayings of the prophets that they read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. And though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. And when they had carried out all that had been written about him, They took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. 
And we ourselves, we proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made for our ancestors. Verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that though this man, but through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified, just as if you never experienced sin and brokenness, through him from everything that you could not be justified from the law of Moses. And then it ends in verse 49 by saying, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. <sighs> Powerful, right? Now, here's what I want you to see. This is a long passage. But just, I want, I want this to strike you for a moment how odd it is. They say, Paul, share something with your Jewish brothers and sisters. And he stands up and he shares this epic narrative. Let me give you a big kind of highlighted version of the Jewish story. And isn't it weird that he makes the focus of that story what? God. And you're like, of course, it's the Bible. Like everything is saying something about God. But think about this. If I asked you, what did you do this weekend? Or if I asked you, we sat over coffee, tell me a bit of your story. Do most people go then? You know what I did this weekend? God did this, and then God did that. And then God did this, and then God did that. You know, my, my life story, at, you know, at 11 years old, God did this. And then at 14, God did this. And then in, no one speaks like that. And so Paul also doesn't usually speak like that. If they asked him to share something, he, of course, did not have to tell the history of Israel this way. He consciously chose to say, you know what? If I look at the history of the world, of Israel, of my life, of where all of this is going, I'm absorbing, I'm noticing, and how do I position myself? I notice one thing. It's all about God. He is working. He has been working. He is working, and he is going to work, and you need to align yourself to what he's doing. Everything in this text is screaming out, God is the main actor of the play. So can we do like a quick two-minute Bible study exercise? I want you, if you have your Bible with you, just nose in your Bible for a second. We're going to fly through this text just once more, and I want to show you more than 15 times Paul goes out of his way to say it's all about God. Verse 17a, it's God who chooses Israel from all the people of the earth for his special purposes. 17b, God made the people grow great in Egypt. It wasn't just simply that they had just multiplied naturally. He made them great, Paul says. 17c, it says God led them out of Egypt, what, with a mighty arm. God was flexing over Egypt, saying that you will see me and experience me as a great savior. Verse 18, God was the guide, the provider, the father of the people in the wilderness. 19a, it was God, it says, who drove out these seven nations in the land of Canaan. 19b, it was God who gave Israel the land of Canaan as an inheritance. He's the owner of the whole world and all of creation. He can do as he pleases. Verse 20, it was God who gave them the judges. It wasn't just a natural process that led to these people arising. They arose because of the actions of God. Verse 21, it was God, it says, who gave Israel their first king, Saul. Verse 22a, it was God who removed that king, Saul. 22b, God raised up David, the son of Jesse. God chose this young boy who plays, you know, the harp of the modern age and who has the sling. And he said, this will be the man that I choose to raise up to do my doing. Verse 23, it was God who brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. And just to make it even more personal, it's not as if it's this impersonal force, um, you know, working at the background. It says of this moment that he did it as he promised. 
that anyone would know as we see these things unfolding in history. Yes, there's the brokenness of the world and the choices of men and the evil of the world and, the, and, it's, and its fallenness. But at the end of the day, you're going to see God scoop up all the evil and brokenness of history and take it still exactly where he wants it to go, as I promised. Verse 24, 25, it says, we're going to meet John the Baptist. And Jesus in Luke 7 says of this John the Baptist that there was no greater prophet ever born of a woman. And yet this John says, man, the one who comes after me, this Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. It's all about this Jesus. Verse 26, when Paul says, this word of salvation, it hasn't just landed here. We haven't thought it up. We haven't sat and kind of pictured it together. It says, no, it was sent to us. God revealed himself to us. Verse 27, Paul goes out of his way to show that even those who do not know God, who do not honor God, who do not yet serve God, who do not conform to God's ways, he says even them will find themselves in the end scooped up into the purposes of God. Because it says these residents of Jerusalem and their rulers, they did not recognize him. They didn't, they didn't bow before him. And yet, he says, when they did what they free will chose to do, they fulfilled their words, condemning him. It's as if God can take every single broken thing in this world and still get it exactly where he needs it to go. He can account for my free will. He can account for evil. He can account for brokenness. He can scoop it all up and he can say, I will still take history exactly where it needs to go because I am the central role player in this whole game. And then it ends in verse 30 by saying, it was God who raised Jesus from the dead. Even the moment like looked like the ultimate failure in the life of Jesus. God was saying, I'm 100% in control. I'm the main actor. Things in the short term will often not look like it should be because it won't align with my kingdom. But ultimately, when, when millions of years of human history, when all of creation is wrapped up, it will say this one thing. God was at the center. It was all about him. If there's a way for me to look at my life, to position myself accordingly, if I look at my finances, my sexuality, how I think about my job, my friends, how I speak to my wife, how I treat my kids, if I think about how I'm going to spend my bonus this month, if I think about where I'm going to go on holiday, if I think about whether or not I should stay in the country, where all of these things, it comes down to one question, who is the main character of the story? And what would he want for me? Perpetua said, I realize at 22, I'm not even the main character. There is someone greater who wants to make me part of his great story. Now, here's my question to you. Why was Paul preaching like this? Why was he doing this? And the reason is this. He wanted people to see that God's great narrative, his great epic story had come to its great conclusion, to its apex, to its climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And because of that, because of what this passage calls the good news of Jesus, everything is different. Because the day that Jesus resurrected, he says something now finally, the final chapter of the kingdom of God, of heaven and earth reuniting, of mankind being reunited to, to, to God and having our purpose restored, our identity renewed. He said that process went into its final chapter and there's going to be this glorious conclusion, but now you live in the in-between. 
You live between the already and the not yet. And because of that, turn your life and everything in your life in faith to this Jesus. If you see the serve setting up the way that it does, that actually maybe life is not about me, maybe it's not even about my marriage primarily or my work or my, my wants and dreams and desires, maybe it's all about God and what He is doing. He says, then turn in faith away from sin and brokenness and all identities and thoughts and turn to what God has done in Jesus and let that change everything in your life. Don't just start going to church every now and then. Don't sprinkle a bit of religion over your life. Don't add a nice little slice of the pie that you can control. He says, no, throw the pie out the window and take the new pie, the final pie, the ultimate pie, the pie that says God has done the final thing. So turn to him. So receive life in him. So have your life upended by him. Don't add him. Lose your life to gain it. Say, man, who cares what my dreams were? I want God's dreams. Who cares what I wanted to do with my money? I want everything that God wants to do with his finances. Who cares what my thoughts about sexuality are? I want to align every facet of my life to God. If he is the main actor, man, nothing in my life should remain untouched by who he is. You see, we think the gospel... The good news, that's what it's called, three churchy language. The good news about Jesus. We think it's too small for our lives. Because we have this out of context, John 3.16 kind of good news gospel. For God so loved the world that he sends his only son that whoever believes in him would not be condemned by have eternal life. And it's like, yeah, that's great. So it means the good news is that we all suck. Jesus got a punch in the nose and now we can go to heaven one day. And we think that's the good news. And I'm like, listen, I think there are some bits in there that sort of make sense. But the story is much greater than that. The story is epic. It's global. It's international. It's eternal. It's translocal. It's, it's scooping up all people for all time saying, God is writing the narrative. Are you still living your story? Or are you connecting yourself to the great story? This story did not start with sin. This story started where all the great stories start. In the beginning. Jason, in the beginning, Bosov, in the beginning, Esti Honeybull, no, no, no. In the beginning, Joe, at the center of his story, no. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. He is the center. If my life, friends, we've said it a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, young people at record rates under 25 are falling into depression and frustration, and we keep saying that secular authorities are saying that we are in a crisis of meaning. People's lives are coming to nothing. I have every bit of technology and help that I've ever wanted. I literally heard a philosopher the other day saying that nanotechnology is gonna help us live for hundreds of years, maybe soon. And he said the issue with that is not the medicine, it's gonna be the purpose. What will a life like that even mean? We're in a crisis. Why am I here? What's life living even meaning? And here it is. Yes, if you are the main character, life is really, really small. But if a great God is writing a great story and he is bringing people into that story, there is no limit to what God can do through you. There is no limit to what your life could mean for him. There is no area of your life that cannot be completely transformed by the love and the truth and the grace of this kind of God. This God is not interested in an hour and a half of a Sunday morning. He wants all nations and all people 
to become his people, his kingdom. So this is a lengthy quote, but I want you to read it with me because I think N.T. Wright says it better than anyone else about the good news. Just read with me. He says, in many churches, the good news has subtly changed into good advice. Here's how to live, they say. Here's how to pray. Here are techniques for helping you become a better Christian, a better person, a better wife or a husband. And in particular, here's how to make sure you're on the right track for what happens after death. Take this advice, say this prayer, and you'll be saved. And you won't go to hell, you'll go to heaven. Here's how to do it. This is advice, not news. The whole point of advice is to make you do something to get a desired result. Now, there's nothing wrong with advice. We all need it on Black Friday. But it isn't the same thing as news. But many people today assume that Christianity is one or more of these things. It's a religion, it's a moral system, it's a philosophy. In other words, they assume that Christianity is about advice. Come to church this morning and receive advice. But that's not. <laughs> it says it wasn't and it isn't. Christianity is simply what? Good news. It's the news that something has happened. And as a result of which the world is a different place. That is what the Apostle Paul was announcing. You share good news, but you announce. Or you, you share good advice. You announce good news. Paul was announcing. He was telling them that something had happened which had changed the world. That the world was now a different place and that he was summoning them to be part of that new, different reality. He was telling them about an event that would cause them to adjust their entire lives in order to come into line with the way that things now were. He was summoning them. Something has happened. Adjust your life and your thinking and your hopes and your dreams and your desires. Adjust and realign all of it to the finished work of Jesus. God is not to be found. God has come to find. It has always been building up to this. The epic narrative that started within the beginning, God, has come to its most beautiful climax when Jesus said, it is finished. And so now I call you, come, let me scoop up your story and make it part of the great story so that your life would go to places you would never have imagined. Never have imagined. Friends, can I just say this again? Our city, as much as I love it, our culture, as much as I appreciate it, our culture has a too small story for your life. What our culture is promising you is not necessarily even bad. It's just too small. What you will live for if you follow the city's narrative is not even necessarily evil. It's just tiny. Whereas God is saying, I have an incredibly big story that I'm calling you to. In fact, it's so big, you need to have your whole life just upended by my spirit. You need the Holy Spirit in you even to just begin to enter into this story. Man, I, I need to come and transform your mind, your thinking. I need to give you gifts. I need to connect you to a new community. I need to start these embassies of the kingdom just so that people would recognize what I have always been busy with. Do you want to go to church? Or do you want to be added into the story of God? I said one point, you, you asked me like, how would we, one do that? It's literally just this one question. 
God, tomorrow morning, how would every single aspect of my life be filtered through the view that you are the middle pin of the story? Tomorrow morning, when I think about what I'm going to say to my wife as I open up my eyes, I can choose to say my selfishness, some of the stuff that's happened over the last couple of weeks, or I can say every bit of my speech, I have to filter through who this God is, through his character, his beauty. Tomorrow morning, when I step into my office and people recognize the character with which I do things, the excellence through which I do things, the hope with which I speak, the way that I suffer when things don't go well in my life. I have a choice to say, I am at the middle of the story. Or I can say, God, I'm readjusting because I want you to be at the middle. When I can choose to say, I'm, I'm entering into a relationship with someone from the opposite sex and I'm going to use my body in a way that pleases me, that brings me joy, that satisfies me, and the, and the culture that says to me that you are the center. Or I can say, God, I want my body to be a weapon of righteousness, as Paul says. Man, I want every bit of my speech and my body to be like this holy weapon that brings glory to God. I want my money not to fall into line with billions of people who have pursued the same old narratives of success and status and come up empty and more depressed than before. I want my finances to be weapons of God's kingdom to build to this great story. He's calling you to something so great. So to end off, I love what Philippians 1.27 says. Paul says, man, as someone who used to think I know the story of my life so well, I had my story figured out so well, Paul says. And then something, this, this man that I didn't know, we just sang about him. Man, he met me on that road, quite literally. And my life is never the same. That Paul says in Philippians 1.27, writing to the church in Philippi, he says, guys, just one thing. He's also preaching a one thing sermon. He says, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, not go to heaven in the clouds, the reality of heaven coming to earth, as Jesus said. He says, as a citizen of that reality, live your life worthy of the gospel, the good news of Christ. How do I make God the, the center of my story? I ask of every single decision and moment of my life, Holy Spirit, how can I in this moment live worthy of of the gospel good news of Christ. As I need to tackle this incredibly difficult conversation with my mom, as I now need to make big decisions about my future, God, as I need to make a decision about my sexual boundaries, God, here's my one question. How can I walk worthy of the good news of Jesus? You know, I grew up in a in a, a all boys school from grade one to 12, and we had all these traditions that would almost set the stage. You, you would become a citizen of that school in a sense. And when we went on sports tours, you know, train tours, bus tours, whatever the case is, there were all these things that you had to do to almost represent your school. So one of those was you had to wear your white shirt and your blazer at all times. You could never be without it. Even in the blazing heat of the summer, you would see us sweating with those blazers on. Why? Because we were citizens of that school. One of the things we had to do is we would have these thank you cards for our hosts that we would put on our, on, our, you know, on our beds and we would say to them, thank you that you hosted us. Why? Because we want to leave an impression because we are citizens of that school. The tradition was that as you come back from your game in the car, you would thank the parents and the boy that you played against 
And if you beat them really badly, then it's really awkward. But you say, thank you for this game. It was great to play against you guys. Why? Because we were citizens of that school. We represented in every action what we wore, what we said, how we said thank you, how we appreciated. Every single thing had to be saturated with this tradition. And Paul is saying, man, just imagine, as we were thinking and praying about this sermon, Jillian saw this prophetic image of the rain just saturating the grass. Just imagine the grass out there, the university grounds. Yesterday, literally, there was this, just this moment of like 10 minutes of just angry rain at our house. And I looked out afterwards, and our grass had no chance. It was like, let me absorb some of it. And it's like, oh, it's too much. And so it was just like just a, a wall of water on top of the grass. Every single inch of the grass had been saturated with the water. And Paul is saying, you know what God is in the business of doing? is taking a life lived for maybe fine but okay little things and saturating that life with the good news. Saying that every cubic centimeter of your soul becomes saturated with a story so big, it scares you. God, me, part of this story. So think about this. Mana can join me. Probably one of the most epic stories ever written, most influential, is of course the Lord of the Rings. Millions of people have been, have been impacted by the story. And you know what I love? Listen to the opening sentence of this epic, epic three-part story. Tolkien says in The Fellowship of the Ring, first words, this book is largely concerned with hobbits. And from its pages, a reader may discover much of their character and a little of their history. This incredibly massive narrative starts with this. This book is largely concerned with hobbits. You know what happens in the life of a perpetua, 22, well-educated noblewoman living for her own things? You know what happens in the life of a Paul, so convinced of what God had called him to, this very sharp, razor-sharp academic Jewish man? You know what happens in the life of a Joe, addicted to pornography, absolutely burned out on religion, trying to be a good person, trying to stay connected to a life of, of just my parents' success and money. You know what happens to many of the people sitting here today? When your life becomes connected, not with a philosophy or a story or advice, but something that happened 2,000 years ago, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the salvation of all people through God. You know what happens? A story that says, this book is largely concerned with Shaul. This book is largely concerned with Joe. It's largely concerned with Johan. It's largely concerned with Tash. That book suddenly becomes this book is largely concerned with God. This life is largely concerned with Jesus. My money is largely concerned with Him. My sexuality, my relationships, my speech. God, make me someone who is so caught up in the great story that on my tombstone one day it will just say, Johann Strofeld, this story was greatly concerned with Jesus. This is what God wants for you and nothing less. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this morning.
that we would be taken in by the great story that you are writing. And not a single one of us, God, would allow a single aspect of our lives not to be touched by your grace, by your love, and your truth. God, we have a desire as a church to have every aspect of our lives to be largely concerned with who you are. Will you do that today? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just come and open up hearts today. Open up revelation for people today. Open up spaces of our lives today that are not aligned with you. And come and saturate us with your kingdom and your purposes. In Jesus' name.